to kind of go, what's up with that? But there's a point. There's a theological statement made in that phrase as we arrive uh, in the next point of the story in chapter 3. What, what ultimately the, the, the author and God himself inspiring Moses is, is seeking to, to reveal to us in that simple statement that the man and his, life were both, and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed is simply that mankind, as God created him, in this perfect paradise, this perfect place, as God's people, had nothing to hide. Which is about to change. Because then we, we have to continue reading, don't we? We get to that very well-known chapter of the Bible. I think most people are somewhat aware of what comes in the next chapter, at least the general story. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in detail but we arrive at chapter 3, and chapter 3 begins the, uh, to inform us of a radical change that, that took place in God's created kingdom. Now, we were reminded in chapters 1 and 2 that, that when God made or prepared or set in order these particular things, it would, it would often record, and God saw that it was good. And last week, I, I tried to help us to understand that when God was saying it was good, it was not merely a statement of God, the intrinsic worth of creation, while that is there, but rather that it was good for the purpose for which God was preparing. And that purpose, that ultimate purpose, was the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. And so when God was saying it was good, and ultimately it was very good, he was simply stating in the text that what he has done, what he has prepared, is good for the purpose that he's seeking good for and suitable for the the life and well-being of humankind as God would create them and place them in that perfect place. And while God made that statement that everything was good and that it was sufficient, it was more than sufficient for humans to live, in this case Adam and Eve, to live and thrive in the place that God had prepared for them while enjoying God's rule and God's blessing, something threatened to undo this perfect creation. It was good. It was not just good as, a, as compared to okay or good, better, best. It was good in the sense that it, it could not be improved upon. But now as we continue to read, we find that something threatens this kingdom. And so in Genesis 3 to 11, we find a story. And, and, and we want to, I want you to see this in one concept. I mean, there's many stories that make up or convey uh, an ultimate truth, really two ultimate truths that run parallel that we'll see. But, but these chapters, verses 3, or chapters 3 through 11, seek to convey one central truth in the overall story of God. And while God is today, has always been, and shall forever be sovereign over all things, his kingdom, created for his great, greatest creation, humankind, only exist as long as God's people willingly submit to his kingship. God is sovereign. That's never been in question. That never changed. That never ceased. But the kingdom that God set up on earth in that original paradise, the place we know as the Garden in Eden, that that perfect place for God's people was threatened by God's creation's willingness to freely submit to his kingship, his Rulership, And so, God's always sovereign. But the kingdom, God's kingdom, is dependent upon that submission to his rule. The entrance of sin in chapter 3 in this world upset the foundation of God's kingdom in this world. And that 
that very base was submission to his rule. Now, we don't like that word submission necessarily in the context that we hear it today. We think of being beaten down and, and that kind of thing. But that's not what the word ultimately means. It means it means us giving over control. And we can state that another way that the, the very the very foundation, the base of God's kingdom being challenged was that mankind ceased to trust in his word. Those two concepts are one and the same. To submit to God's rule, to trust what he says, to trust the word of God. And so, just as a way of reminder, the kingdom of God, or a definition that we've given you, I've given you over the last couple of weeks, a simple, practical definition of the kingdom of God is God's people living in God's place, enjoying God's rule and his blessing. But sin's entrance, as we will find, into the world through man's attempt, think of it in these terms, man's attempt to rule and provide for himself caused Adam and Eve, God's pinnacle of creation, to cease to be God's people. It caused them to be exiled from the place that God had prepared for them And it brought about, as a result, God's judgment rather than his blessing. Genesis 3 through 11 reveal for us the ongoing effects of sin in this world upon God's creation. And and when I say God's creation, I don't just mean you and I, but every aspect of God's creation was affected when sin entered the world. And what we find revealed in this first or original sin Uh, only increases in its effects and its intensity as the story goes on, as it continues to unfold in the pages of scriptures. Until, and along the way, at points, God in his mercy and grace intervenes. And we're going to see that. We're going to see these parallel concepts that are running in this this view of the the kingdom of God. We see the the effects of sin on the kingdom having an increased an intense effect upon this creation, but at the same time, we're going to constantly see the intervention of God because of his marvelous mercy and his grace, because he loves us and seeks to establish or reestablish this great kingdom that he first established. These chapters in chapters 3 through 11, they illustrate for us what the world looks like apart from the rule and reign of our creator, ultimately. Now, we need to remember, before we go on, as I tried to help you see last week, the context in which we are to read this story. If you remember last week, I tried to help you orient yourself to, to see the, the story of creation through the eyes of the original audience. Those who were, were on the banks of the Jordan River, looking out over into a, a land that, that had been promised to them for many generations, that they had been seeking for some time now, and particularly this this generation that's on the, the, the banks of the Jordan, they're, they're waiting. And they, they've been expecting this for 40 years. But they've been hearing about it even longer, the place that God prepared. This is the original audience. And now Moses has, has, has gathered or assembled them all. And we read about this in Deuteronomy. And he is uh, unpacking for them the, the story of God. And that's what we're, we're getting in on that story as Moses unpacks it for the people of God on the brink of... Of the promised land. And so we saw that through the eyes of creation that the, the story or the, the things that are given to us in that story of creation are not to satisfy all our curiosities and to answer all the scientific questions we have, but rather to, to answer a theological question for this people, God's people, who are about to enter God's prepared place for them where they're supposed to dwell in perfect peace. 
And so Moses is telling the story and Moses continues as he should to not only tell them the grand story of creation. There's the place. God wants to prepare a place for his perfect people, his, his own people to dwell. And it was great. It doesn't stop there in anticipation of their entering God's promised land. But he goes on to tell them what happened because they needed to know that. So, so Moses adds to that the warning. And you can read about it later in De- Deuteronomy where he basically tells them, look, in the land that you're about to enter that God had promised you, so long as you serve God's word, serve God and love him, it will go well for you. But if you choose to rebel, then it will not. In fact, he's told through the inspiration of the Spirit, that there would come a time in the future when God's people would once again rebel and as a result, they too would be exiled from the land. Just like what we're getting ready to read in Genesis 3 to 11. So this serves initially as a warning for those people and then in understanding that, it begins to be a, a warning and a, a, a revelation to you and I in the context in which we live today, which is somewhat different, but yet not. There are many things that are, that are applicable to us in understanding the, the coming of God's kingdom, the present reality of God's kingdom, even where we live here and now, and how we are to live in light of that. So, as we look at this, I want us to consider for a moment, or read together, the final saga, or part of the final saga that we we find in this portion of scripture, Genesis 3 through 11, because in chapter 11, we find that in this final saga, the effects of sin have reached an intensity. They've reached a pinnacle point. And what we will see as we, though we're only going to read this portion, we're not going to read Genesis 3 through 11, uh, but we're going to see three, three key focuses in Genesis 3, and then Genesis 6, and then Genesis 11. We keep arriving at the very same point Once God's kingdom, in essence, collapses on earth. It doesn't cease to exist, but it collapses on earth. And Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and Genesis 9 become the focus. And then everything that we read in between helps support what what Moses and ultimately God is trying to convey or reveal to his people and ultimately to you and I as his people today. So let's read together Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Moses writes... Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will come, excuse me, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face 
of the earth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that you have, by your great wisdom, left for us even this day your very word. Father, in, in light of our context, in light of our culture, we, we find ourselves pressed almost daily on the extent to which we are to adhere to this word. Many dilemmas arise and we begin to ask questions like, is, is that really what it means? And sometimes, Lord, that, that's, that's as a result of the spirit within us and wisdom, but oftentimes that's a result of the flesh within us and the world around us driving us to do the very thing that we will see once again happen in Genesis chapter 3. And Father, you've called us even this day to be your kingdom builders here on earth. And as your children, we understand that that is our highest calling, our primary pursuit. And so we want to be busy about that. So Lord, we ask that in, in, the time as we can, in this time, as we consider your word, that you would use your word as you promised Uh, telling us that it would never return void, that it would accomplish all that you've set it out to do. And so I pray this morning that you would do that very thing in our hearts, that you would use your word in spite of me as the messenger. Lord, you would use the word to cause us to, to separate ourselves from this world and be busy about your kingdom. Father, I think about the words of Revelation where you speak of Babylon and you call your church to come out of her that we have no part in this world, that though we dwell here, we are to be kingdom dwellers. So God, help us to understand what that means for us. Help us to begin to, to, to just enter into a way of thinking that would be guided by the Spirit that would allow us to know how being a part or pursuing the kingdom would affect our, our daily lives from moment to moment in the things that we are now currently engaged in. So God, in these next few moments, I pray that you will open our eyes to see the, uh, the truths of your word that you, you desire for us to understand and grasp. I pray that you open our ears that we would hear that word so it would resonate with our spirits within us. And Lord, open our hearts that we might joyfully and gladly embrace your word as the very word of God, no matter how it resonates with the world around us. Lord, we need your help to do that very thing. We are sinful and we need the, the strength that you offer by your grace to allow us to, to live in accordance to your word and your will in this time that you have placed us. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. As we enter into this story, and <clears throat> as we have already begun last week in the story of creation, you know, I think one of the, the, the questions that often arises, and it's not a bad question, it's a practical question. I, I think it's a side question. That is, you know, how long did Adam and, Lee, Adam and Eve live in that garden before Genesis chapter 3? And, and, and the simple reality is we don't know. For whatever reason, God didn't see fit to, to tell us how long it took for Genesis 3 to happen. Now, my opinion, while that doesn't matter a whole lot, is that it probably wasn't long because living in the garden meant living underneath the rule of God in obedience to his word, trusting his word. And one of God's first commands to them was be fruitful and multiply. And at this point, they had not done that. And so it's very likely that that it's not been all that long because Adam and Eve had yet to adhere to that command. And so as we enter Genesis 3, ultimately the timing doesn't matter. 
but the theological point that we are meant to understood is clearly conveyed. Genesis 3 is the historic account of the very first sin. Yes, I believe that this actually happened. That these two people, Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, dwelt in a perfect place of, of perfect bliss, and that they encountered the temptation of this serpent. This is a historic account of the first sin, and it is this sin that we come to realize changes everything. It is this sin that is the cause of why we do what we do even now, today, and why we stand in need of the Word of God on a regular basis. And if we are not careful from our perspective, where we live and our limited view of things, and yes, our view is limited, if we observe this story merely from our limited perspective, we, we end up asking ourselves, or we find ourselves asking, you know, when we read Genesis 3, what's the big deal? So what? They ate some fruit. I mean, give me a break. I mean, have you ever thought, I mean, that really just doesn't seem like a big deal in light of all the, the sins that we encounter uh, around us almost on a daily basis. They ate some fruit. But whether or not we find their particular sin or the expression of their particular sin all that big in light of all the other possible sins, the principle that lies behind their action, the ultimate root, is an affront to and rebellion against Almighty God. Whether it's a, in our eyes a little little sin or a big sin, the principle, the intent behind it is the same. It is rebellion against our great God. It was not the action itself that ultimately reveals the gravity of the sin, but the intention of the heart. You know, we're probably very familiar as we read the Gospels. That's the very thing that Jesus came and began to just unveil. That it was the heart. It was from out of the heart that these things flow. It's not how we look on the outside. Those are symptomatic that may show something about the inside, but that's all it is. And whether a sin is little or big, it points to the very same issue. And that's the case for Adam and Eve in this first sin. And we consider the ideal of a kingdom. Uh, a kingdom requires two things. It requires, first, a king. And then, it's not much of a kingdom if you don't have subjects, right? These are essential elements of a kingdom. And by its definition, a kingdom assumes the rule of a king who reigns over his subjects and, in return, subjects who willingly submit to the rulership of their king. Anything other than that, in that scenario, scenario, results in ultimate anarchy, which is exactly what Genesis 3 and following will convey to us. In this case, the kingdom of God, in God's kingdom, God is a perfect king. Now, when we think of kingdoms, we think of all the sinful stuff that comes with it. You know, people uh, usurping authority and power over somebody and, uh, and demanding and commanding uh, for selfish gain. But in this kingdom, God is a perfect king. I mean, there's, there's nothing better. Who seeks to rule over his creation in love and holiness. This is the kingdom that God established. And his reign is one that seeks the greatest good of his people. And so long as Adam and Eve would abide uh, in, in this place that God prepared for them. As long as they would submit to God's rule. They would experience life to the fullest without any want and without any need. Everything. Understand, this is important. Everything, without exception, 
would be provided for them. Everything that was important, everything that was necessary in order for them to live life to its fullest, and that is to its fullest satisfaction, and to dwell in perfect peace ultimately forever. God was going to provide all that. We saw that last week. And so chapter 3 introduces to us yet this another character in the unfolding drama of Scripture, the serpent. Now, we immediately have images in our mind, I know. Uh, the serpent. Now, for whatever reason, we're not told anything about the origin of the serpent. At this point, all we've got is the story we read so far. We're not told about the origin. So Moses, standing on a bank, speaking these words or sharing this story with God's people in preparation, he doesn't go into all the details. He merely tells them what's necessary. And there's this serpent. Uh, regardless of where this serpent uh, originated from, although we could add to that, we're... We're given the identity of this serpent later, right? Revelation chapter 12 identifies that serpent of old to be Satan himself. So we have that information, but it's not all that important at this point in time. At this point, the identity of the serpent is not what's important. It it is what the serpent seeks to do. What the serpent represents as as an expression of ultimate rebellion of the creator. And so this serpent, as you all know, Genesis 3... He begins with doubt, right? Did God really say? Now, we can try to put our shoes, ourselves in the shoes of Adam and Eve and be like, man, if we lived in the perfect paradise and everything was grand and God provided everything, man, we'd never question God. You ever said something like that? Or maybe you said, you know, man, if I was standing at the, at the, on the bank of the Red Sea when Moses raised that staff and the seas... The, the waters parted and they walked across and all that. Man, if I was there and I'd have seen that, then I would never even think about doubting God's word like these guys did for the next 40 years after seeing that. Well, the moment we, we begin to think that way, we need to start preaching to ourselves and reminding ourselves that we do that very thing every single day. We read the word of God and, and we go, well, does it, is that what it really means? And, and, and we often do that from a cultural perspective in which we live and often from our own selfish desires. We don't necessarily want it to mean what it says it means, what it clearly states sometimes. And so this is how Satan began. Did God really say? And then after it's established what God said, when Eve responds, the serpent goes on to outright deny the word of God. He goes from, did God really say to... No, you will not surely die. It's all a lie. So the serpent attempted to create doubt in the heart of Adam and Eve, something he continues to do this very day, about the goodness of their creator. He then tempts them by convincing them that if they would only reject God's rule and eat of this tree, this this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they too would be like God, knowing good and evil. Now this is important for us to understand, because ultimately that tree, the knowledge of knowing good and evil, the pursuit of that was ultimately the ability to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. That's, that's the understanding of the knowledge of good and evil. This is what they were pursuing, the, the right or the ability to decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong. I mean... We see this expressed in our own lives every day. Now, who are you to say what's right for me? Right? What, is that, what am I saying at that point? I'm saying the very same thing. I get to decide what's right for me and what's not. Regardless of what you think or what the world around me thinks, that's my job. I have that right. 
This is exactly what was going on in the garden in the, the temptation to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, while we often make a huge issue of the right to free choice, I mean, this is something we, we stand for, right? You know, we have the right to make these choices. We need to understand that that, that is a product of the fall. Us choosing for ourselves, that's a product of the fall. Adam, however, and Eve, they had real freedom. They, they had true freedom of will, as we often term it. You see, they had the ability, as they walked in that garden, that perfect paradise of God, to, to decide to gladly and joyfully submit to God's rule. But as a result of the fall, we are all, ever since that time, born enslaved to sin. We're not in control of those choices. Sin reigns over us. The ability to choose to submit to God only comes through God's amazing grace. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8. But nevertheless, the serpent somehow convinces Eve that God was holding out on them. He, He wasn't looking out for their interests, but only his own. And that they could become their own rule makers if only they could get out from underneath the rule of the creator. So ultimately, the story tells us they did choose for themselves. Eve first, and her, and her husband Adam to follow. And what they chose to do was to deny the word of God. Now, we often want to think of that different, but that's no different when we talk about the word of God. They chose, ultimately, and this first sin was a denial of the word of God. To trust God's word first. And the result was devastating. Not only for Adam and Eve, but for you and for me. The perfect existence that they had been promised in this world became a distant reality in the blink of an eye. The scripture goes on to reveal what we might call a fracture in God's kingdom. And I, I want to call it that because it didn't disappear. It didn't completely cease to exist. It was, as a title, decimated within this world, at least for a time. There's a fracture in this kingdom. And these were the results of that fracture. The fellowship between God and man was fractured. We see that immediately after they sin because, what, the normal day continues and then God comes down. But where's Adam and Eve, the ones who were naked and not ashamed? They were hiding for the first time. They had something to hide. And so this, this relationship between them and God is, is fractured, not destroyed, but there's this big chasm that was placed in between. Not only that, the, the scripture in chapter 3 goes on to tell us that the fellowship between man and woman was fractured. That something happened. Again, it wasn't erased. The, the truth that God established was still there, but there was this, this big change. No longer would man and woman exist in a, in a perfect complementary relationship as God had created them. But now the woman's desire would be against her husband. And, and there would be this struggle that would go on. And, and in return, the, the husband would seek to, to rule her. Chapter 3 tells us. But then not only that, the relationship of man and creation was fractured. Because chapter 3 goes on to reveal to us that even creation itself around us, nature, would begin to create a struggle for the existence of humankind on this earth. Rather than as God intended it to be, to create Creation was intended to be a, a, a provision for our existence. Not a struggle, but 
while still a provision. It didn't disappear. And now also became a great struggle. The kingdom of God suffered a serious blow when Adam and Eve first rebelled against God and wanted to choose for themselves. But God's kingdom was not utterly destroyed. It's exactly what we're looking at through the series, that it's, it's still there. There's still a glimmer as we look through it, and even more so on this very day. And God graciously preserved Adam and Eve by covering their nakedness. The story goes on and tells us. And this act reveals that un, the undeserved grace that we're going to see Continually through this story, in light of man's rebellion and man's selfishness as man's desire to choose for themselves, we're going to see this, this undeserved grace of God because he loves his creation. We also see in chapter 3 a very significant point that has something to do with this kingdom. He makes a promise that the seed of the serpent would be destroyed by the seed of the woman. Now, while that promise is not unpacked or unveiled at that point, it is throughout the rest of Scripture. It's part of the story that's, that's being unveiled. Up till the time that we see this, the entrance of that seed into this world when the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And it was that seed that ultimately crushes the head of the serpent and is the one who would restore the kingdom of God ultimately to its original state. After we get past Genesis 3, we see a commentary. And, and, and this commentary is a cycle. And the point is this. We need to understand... Genesis 1 and 2. We need to grasp what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2, as we discussed last week. But not only that, we need to get the, the full depth of Genesis 3. And so what happens after Genesis 3, especially right here from chapters 4 to chapter 11, is, is, a, is just a, a pounding of this reality. In case you missed it, you need to see what happens. In case you think you're the exception, you need to see... What happens in this world when mankind seeks to choose for himself, seeks to be his own rule maker, seeks to rule himself rather than submit to the rule of his creator? And that's what we now see in chapters 4 through 6. We see this development of this. In chapter 4, which we're going to move through very quickly, we see the immediate result of sin's entrance. We see the first murder. I mean, I'm sure there's other things that happen, but this gets the point across to us. It goes from eating fruit to killing one's brother, just like that. It doesn't take any time for, for Cain, who, who wants to exceed his brother, who, who in self, selfish ambition, to murder his brother, even though God warns him by his word to be careful, because sin is crouching at his door and his desire was against him. Even then, in, in opposition to the very word of God, Cain continues to make decisions for himself and make the rules, and he kills his brother. But the story in chapter 4 goes on to help us understand the intensity and the effects of sin. Because while Cain murders his brother in cold blood, we find some semblance, maybe not what we would like to see, but some semblance of remorse and grief in Cain. But then we're given the genealogy, the first genealogy of the Bible, of Cain... It leads up to a man named Lamech, where Cain killed his brother and had remorse and grief. Lamech murders another and now brags about it. It's quite a change in the effects and intensity of sin. Now, while Genesis chapter 5 serves several purposes in the context of, of Genesis 3 through 11, the most obvious, and you are aware of this, I'm sure, is the repeated phrase, and he died. 
It's reminding us of the grave effects of sin in this world in case we don't get it. And, and, and you say, well, come on, we're not that stupid. We, we get it. I mean, I, I'm an intelligent being. I mean, think about, I can even think about myself as a, as a younger person. Now, the older I get, the more cautious I get, and you may be able to equate with this, and I think it's because you become more and more uh, in, in touch with your own mortality as you grow older. And time starts passing a lot faster. But as a young man, I didn't think anything could hurt me. I mean, you could tell me all day long that this is bad for you, that something could happen, but who cares? Because it's me. Nothing's going to happen to me. So we're not really as smart as we'd like to be. And so the Bible, God, revealing his word, understands our stubbornness, our rebelliousness, and he reminds us constantly of the fact that death comes and he died. Sin brought death just as God said it would. Genesis 6 brings us to the next climax. We go from Genesis 3, sin entrance, to the cl- a climax of sin's effects on this world. Where we read in Genesis chapter 6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention and intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Say that a couple of times in your head. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, that's like overkill, isn't it? Every intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, that, you, you can't really express that in any more emphatic way to recognize that the world was wicked. Now, we, we try to imagine that. We try to think of, you know, barbarians and, and just murderous people. But, you know, I imagine there wasn't a whole lot of difference in a world which we probably live in today. In the sense of the rebellion and wickedness of man's heart. Only God has promised not to flood this world again. But what follows in the story of creation is, is something that we need to read in light of the creation story. As we should the entirety of Genesis 3 to 11. In the contrast. Because what essentially happens in the flood is a reversal of creation. I mean, the language is meant to help us see the connection. Because in the creation, we saw that the waters covered the face of the earth, or the face of the land. And God separated the waters and brought forth the land. Why? So that it would be a place that his greatest creation could dwell. And now in the flood, we see the great reversal of what some people have called de-creation. Because the land resides, or, 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 or comes falls back down and the waters once again cover over the land. God undoes, if that's a word, undoes uh, what he did in creation. You see, and it's helped us understand that God's word, though ignored, continued to stand true. In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And sin's entrance brought death into this world in every way that we could even imagine. But... Before we conclude, I need to bring one more thing into or before us. Because while we see the, the collapse of this kingdom of, that God established, and we see the, the effects, the results that came and continue to this day of this kingdom, which we will look at one more in just a moment, we need to be reminded that even while all that was going on, God in his grace, as we read throughout the pages of the scripture, preserves a remnant. You know, we, we hear that word remnant. And that word just always represents God in his sovereign grace preserving some in the midst of 
the wickedness of sin in this world. And we see that very story from the very beginning. Because in the midst of the collapse of the kingdom and Adam and Eve, we've already mentioned, we see God covering their nakedness. He didn't have to do that. He wasn't required to do that, but he does. He, he, he could have allowed them to be separated from his presence to face both spiritual and physical death, and that be it. But he doesn't. He preserves them for a reason. And then in chapter 4, we see the, the intervention of God's grace, even in the midst of Cain's murder, as God preserves him for some reason, which I'm not sure I completely understand, but he puts a mark on Cain, warning any, anybody else that they do the same thing to him that he did to his brother, that they would face the judgment of God. God graciously even provides for Cain in the midst of his rebellion. In chapter 4, we also see the close of that story of Cain. If you look at the very end of that lineage, it closes with this. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, or another seed. And that seed becomes important, because we've already read about that in chapter 3, when God said the seed of the woman would crush the, the, the head of the seed of the serpent. So God provides another seed for for Eve, in spite of, in the place of Abel, because Cain killed him. And to Seth was born, a uh, son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, when we read something like that at that time, we want to go back and go, well, when was that? And maybe you can figure it out, but again, not the ultimate point. What we see inserted here is in the midst of sin's reign in this world, God's glory, God's sovereignty has not Dissipated. God is still working. God is still gracious in the midst of this world. And then chapter 5 not only becomes a story of the continuation of sin's results in death, it becomes a story of the seed of Seth. A seed that we find ends up where? The man by the name of Noah. And even in the midst of that, this striking verse that just, you know kind of blows our minds and makes us ask why because we get the story of and he died and he died and he died but then right in the middle of that we we learn this man named Enoch and unlike the rest of the story we find that and Enoch walked with God and he was not and you go what why is that everybody else dies as a result of sin and Enoch gets life I mean he gets to go with God and while I can't give you any greater explanation than this it simply is a glimpse of the hope of life with our creator once again and so the story goes on in chapter 6 in the midst of that corruption we see God's grace intervene because we're told in verse 8 in chapter 6 but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and the first thought is that Noah must have been this great man but that's, that's, that's misunderstanding the text Noah was a part of the wickedness of the world, but he found grace. What's grace? Remind me of that. The deserved favor of God? No. It's the undeserved favor of God. So even Noah deserved something other than that, but he finds grace. Or sometimes I say favor, which is the word for grace. He finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so, for some reason, God preserves this seed through Noah... And so the story continues. God's judgment falls. We read the story of, uh, of the flood. And then we find ourselves on the other side of this great devastation with new hope. In fact, 
the story starts to sound a whole lot like the creation story. You see, because Noah gets off the boat, and when he gets off the boat in chapter 9, God speaks to him and he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sounds just like what he told Adam and Eve. And if that isn't enough to, to, to make a correlation, some, some people may not see this, but Noah, he gets out and he, he plants kind of a garden. And he grows the vine. And then from the fruit of the vine, the text tells us, he partakes. Sounds very similar to the story that we've read already. And then the result of Noah partaking of this fruit, in spite of God's promise, in spite of God's word to him, we find that the result is nakedness and sin. And the story reminds us that in spite of even God wiping out all of mankind and preserving one family, that sin's effects on this world are that big. They're that serious. And even in the midst of one who finds grace in God's eyes, preserved, sin still reigned. But we're given more hope in chapter 10 because we're given the descendants of a man named Shem. In spite of the judgment, in spite of the wickedness, in spite of sin's effects, we're given this, this genealogy. This is why we're given genealogies in the Bible, to help trace the promise of God. And this genealogy leads up to chapter 11, where we find one final pinnacle of rebellion of those who dwelled in the land. And that's the text we read. Now all of God's creation, man on the face of the earth that God had prepared for them, once again, strike out against God's sovereign rule in this world. And as the Bible tells us, they say, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in heavens. It's very similar to the ideal of being like God or taking the place of God or being God for ourselves. And he says, and let us make a name for ourselves. It's one final expression of the extent of sin in this world, the extent of God's kingdom's collapse in this world and sin's reign in our hearts and our lives. And we'd be fools to think that we're different. Things are better now. We're much wiser. We know more than they knew, right? That's the kind of things we think. We're smarter. We have more technology. And somehow, sometimes, we're duped into thinking that things just aren't quite that bad. And the reality is, we're still living in the cycle of Genesis 3 to Genesis 11. Only with, with God's promise that he would never destroy the world again by flood. Now, the story of sin's reign on earth doesn't end with this story in Babel. Because even chapter 11 picks up again the descendants of Shem. And we're going to find that that genealogy, ten generations later, ends by a, with a man by the name of Abram, whom we know as Abraham. And we'll see this as we look to it next week. Abraham the one who, rather than saying, come, let us build a tower and a city and make a name for ourselves, one whom hears the word of God, obeys, and then God says of him, I will make your name great. You don't need to make a name for yourself. So God's grace is abundant in the midst of sin's reign. God shows us this because we need to hear it over and over again. Because this is the world that you and I live in. 
The story of Babel is the story of another kingdom. It's not the kingdom of God. It's, the, it's a rival kingdom. It's the kingdom of this world that, that mankind seeks to build so that we can continue to, to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves, so we can make decisions for ourselves, that we can provide for ourselves in spite of all that God has promised us, as we saw in the, in the very first message. That God has promised our perfect provision to provide everything necessary. Ours is to pursue the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is still a present reality. Not in its fullest sense as we've discussed every week. But it came near in Christ. And one day Christ has promised that it will come in fullness. In Revelation we read the celebratory uh, refrain of now the kingdom of our God has become the kingdom of this world. And one day the kingdom that began in this world in Babel will collapse forever and God's kingdom will stand. The only difference between the kingdom then and the kingdom we read about in Genesis 1 and 2 is that there will be no further chance for sin to enter and corrupt God's perfect kingdom. Remember the question I asked you a couple weeks ago? What is your greatest desire? That question just goes to the heart of this. What is driving you today? What causes you to get up in the morning? What causes you to go to work? What causes you to do the things that you do? Because at the very top of that list, if you are one of God's children, then the very first thing on your lips should be, I'm in pursuit of God's kingdom here on earth. Because he has unleashed the church. That is you and I. And our primary pursuit is God's kingdom on this earth. If our pursuit is anything else, if our passion is anything other than that, in light of what we've read, in light of what God is revealing to us and the effects of sin in this world, if we don't get that, then there's one of two things that are probably wrong. Number one, it's likely that you don't have the Spirit of God within you, which in essence means that while you may be religious, you don't believe. You've not been saved. Now, that's not my call. That's, that's yours. Or because of the world and the culture in which we live, it's so easy for us in this day and age as Christians to make so many other things important and justifiably so. We have so many things we have to do and we understand that. And we, we can sidetrack God's purposes in our lives for those things and it makes perfect sense, at least to us. But the reality is this. If you are a child of God, then your purpose in this age is his glory, the pursuit of his kingdom at all costs. So where are you today? Father, we thank you for your word. As we have tried to remember each week, uh, even in your word, we are taught that we are to pursue your kingdom above all else and that all the things that we use as an excuse to, to, to distract us, you've promised you would add those things to us. And so, Father, you even taught us when, you, when the disciples asked you to teach them how to pray, even the prayer that you gave to them was one of the kingdom's pursuit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done, thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 
and the glory and the power forever and ever. And God, I pray that that would indeed be the prayer of our hearts. Work in the hearts of your people, we pray, God. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Challenge us. Impassion our hearts for the sake of the gospel. May your people here in this place be a people who exemplify a true passion and pursuit of your kingdom here on this earth. So God, as we spend this time in, in response, I pray that you would stir us. Help us to contemplate that you are truly the very center of the universe. Have your way in the hearts of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.